0: Sometimes it can feel like you've already watched every show out there. Enter Acorn TV. Acorn TV streams the most binge-worthy of British programming, from cozy mysteries and police procedurals to delightful period dramas and so much more. Do you love a clever, cheeky whodunit? Then check out Midsummer Murders. The new season
1: is out now. Two murders in the same wood within three weeks. This is the country of the country, anything goes.
0: Acorn TV is just $5.99 a month, and Proof listeners can try Acorn TV for free for 30 days. Go to acorn.tv and use promo code PROOF. That's A-C-O-R-N TV, code P-R-O-O-F. Hey guys, Bridget here. Before we start this week's episode of Proof, I've got a favor to ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description, and we want to know what you think. It only takes a few minutes, and it really helps us to make the show better. Now, on to proof. As I look back at 2020, I'm amazed at how we lived in what seemed like a constant state of confusion. We were subjected to a never-ending cacophony of talking heads, all feeding us more and more information. But at the same time, It felt like we knew nothing at all. COVID-19 was, well, make that still, is a confusing virus. Aside from the symptoms of fever, respiratory issues, malaise, people reported delirium, skin issues, something called COVID toes. Some also said that they lost their sense of smell. As someone who works in the food industry... I know that smell plays a huge role in shaping our perception of taste. I just don't know how I'd cope without my sense of smell. But I do know someone who has dealt with this. My colleague, Molly Birnbaum. Molly's gonna take over from here. This is Molly's story. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Pert. Hi there. I've got great news. You never have to make the decision between sending flowers or delicious chocolates as a gift ever again. With Edible, you can send it all. Every order is sent direct from your local store. Edible has everything fresh fruit arrangements, handcrafted baked goods, and boxes of decadent chocolates. There's something for every occasion and budget. And it gets better. You can get same day delivery or free next day delivery. Visit Edible.com or your local edible store and get $10 off your order when you use the code proof at checkout. That's EDIble.com offer code proof.
2: When I was 22, I lived in Boston and wanted to be a chef. It was 2005. I had gone to college to study art history, but mainly spent my time reading cookbooks. Sorry, Mom and Dad. As soon as I graduated, I marched into the kitchen of a highly-lauded restaurant, the Craigie Street Bistro, and begged for a job. I spent each night in the back kitchen, awash in the scents of brown butter and roasted chicken while I peeled garlic. I washed herbs, sorted mushrooms, all while sweating through the bandanas tying back my curly mess of hair. I did this while trying to learn as much as possible from the chefs surrounding me. Oh, and I washed dishes. Technically, I was a dishwasher. But, you know, I was working my way up the line and had plans to go to culinary school. The important part is that I really, really loved food. I loved the simple stuff I ate at home. Pasta with brown butter and tangy Parmesan. Fresh basil paired with summer ripe tomatoes. Roasted broccoli, both crunchy and tender, bitter and sweet. I also loved the fancy stuff. At the restaurant, my appetite roared in the face of so much physical work. It was a hunger I had never experienced in my desk-bound days of school. During service, the sous chefs would hand me samples of butterscotch ice cream or sour milk panna cotta, Whispers of sugar and cold that I ate between the clouds of steam released from the sanitizer with every load of dishes. I inspected the sear of hanger steak's flesh, exhaled the minted song of sorbet. One morning, late in that hot and hazy summer, I stepped out onto my porch in running shoes and shorts. It was dark and cloudy. I could feel the impending rain in the thick air. It was the same day that Hurricane Katrina made landfall. I remember that. I remember the feeling of my iPod in my hand and my headphones in my ears, the sound of my sneakers on the pavement as I set out to jog down the street. I ran past the apartment complex that blasted the fresh scent of laundry from its street-level vents, past the local high school, barren for summer break, up a small hill, around a corner, and then paused at the intersection. I must have seen the blinking neon hand signal winking to me across the four-lane highway, but I only hesitated for a second before I crossed. I didn't see the small Ford four-door car as it sped up to pass through the light which had just turned from red to green. It slammed straight into my body. I flipped up onto the hood of the car, smashing the windshield with my skull. I would later learn that I broke my pelvis in multiple places and tore the ligaments in my left knee. When the ambulance arrived, I was awake but confused. I don't really remember much of the next few weeks. I have hazy images of the hospital, my divorced parents bickering over my hospital bed, feeling dizzy when looking at anything for more than a minute, the pain of open-knee surgery and its slow, slow, slow recovery this i do remember very clearly though it was the moment that my stepmother held a freshly baked apple crisp under my nose it was about a month after the accident i was recovering at my father's house in new hampshire everyone in the room had oohed and awed as the dessert baked that smell they said just like fall i felt confused i didn't smell a thing When my stepmother held the crisp under my nose, I breathed in deeply, looking for the familiar aromas of apple, cinnamon, and butter. I could feel the thick heat of the steam in my nose and on my chin, but there was no scent at all. Just a blank space where the aroma of autumn used to be. Later that day, I hectically sniffed at everything I could—laundry detergent, coffee, tea, perfume, nothing— I had lost my sense of smell. My first thought was, that's weird. I didn't know you could lose your sense of smell. My second, what even happened? And my third, will it come back? The doctors I saw didn't have much to tell me. At least it wasn't your eyesight, they all seemed to imply. What was happening to me? I became obsessed with finding out. I would spend years talking to doctors, scientists, researchers, chefs, and even perfumers, trying to understand this delicate, mysterious sense. I didn't know yet how the sense of smell worked. But, as I'd learn, it is a delicate and complex system, a chain of connections and cascading signals that operate on a molecular level. Whether it's a charcoal whiff of the smoke off a grill on a summer evening or the lemon dish soap in my mother's kitchen— Every aroma is made up of invisible particles. A single scent can hold more than a hundred of them, combining to create the complex aroma of Chanel Number no. 5, of ham roasting on Christmas Day, or of the brined ocean shore in Maine. I recently spoke with Dr. Pam Dalton about this. I'm Pamela Dalton,
3: and I'm a member at the Monell Chemical Census Center in Philadelphia.
2: The Monell Chemical Senses Center is an independent research institute in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I went there for the first time a few years after the accident. The doctors I'd seen at that point couldn't give me any concrete answers about my sense of smell. But Pam was able to tell me about the complex, invisible dance of an odor molecule to the brain. It's quite a journey, so bear with me. It starts with an inhalation. With every inhale, molecules travel through the craggy pathways that begin at the nostrils and head toward the brain. They speed past the olfactory cleft, which is a narrow opening toward the top of the nose. They then hit the olfactory receptors, which are housed on the hair-like tips of the neurons that peek through a mucous membrane called the olfactory epithelium.
3: The odor molecules then bind with the receptor cell themselves, and that generates a signal or an impulse. Now, humans have about 400 different kinds of receptor cells, and most receptors respond to multiple different odor molecules.
2: Then the messaging begins.
3: So what is generated as a signal for the perception of coffee or flour is actually a pattern of signals across multiple different types of receptors.
2: These pattern signals travel on pathways made by neurons, which snake from the nose through a thin sheet of bone called the cribriform plate and are deposited in the olfactory bulb, which lies toward the bottom of the brain. It forms a pattern not unlike a line of musical notes or the HTML coding of a webpage. The Bulb takes these patterns, like reading the score of a piano concerto or lyrics to a lullaby, and sends them further on to the parts of the brain that deal with conscious perception and emotional response.
3: Now, those brain areas are where we can actually consciously recognize the smell as one we've experienced before, react to it emotionally, and probably also retrieve the memories of where we've experienced it or what it is associated with.
2: Scent molecules had been entering my nose and traveling up to my brain unhampered for 22 years before my accident. When I breathed in the scent of chicken stock while working at the restaurant, those rich poultry particles hit my olfactory receptors and spurred a slew of signals to my brain. I would stop, sniff, and think... I smell chicken stock. I never thought about how I could tell the difference between the scent of chicken and veal stock, between lard and butter. It was a movement too complicated, too minuscule, and entirely too invisible for me to notice, let alone care about. However my brain processed smell, it all ended when I smashed my skull against the windshield of that car. In the crash, my brain bounced against the inside of my forehead. With that impact, there was friction. My brain rubbed against the cribriform plate, which sheared off the neuronal endings like a lawnmower over grass. Like the tendon in my leg, the neurons that connected my nose to my brain snapped and then receded. With that split-second crash, my sense of smell vanished. This, according to Pam, is called anosmia.
3: Anosmia is the loss of the ability to smell, and it can arise from a number of different ways. But generally, when we say someone is anosmic, we mean that they cannot smell at all. Their ability to smell is completely gone.
2: Before the accident, I had no idea it was even possible to lose your sense of smell, let alone a common side effect of a head injury. But I was certainly not alone. There were millions of people, just like me, who had lost their sense of smell. Because there are other ways the sense of smell is vulnerable, too. Nasal sinus disease and even a common cold can wreak havoc with the ability to smell. This can affect people in the short and long term. This is something Pam and her colleagues at Monell study a lot.
3: And then there are things like post-viral and viral losses of smell. The common cold, for example, when you get congested, very often that's a blockage. A small percentage of people, after they recovered from the congestion of a virus, still had a smell loss. And that meant that the virus itself had interfered with the ability of the receptors or the area around the receptors to allow them to do what they do normally, which is bind
2: odorants and send a signal to the brain. And then, of course, there's COVID. Do we know what happens with COVID and why losing your sense of smell is a side effect there?
3: We have some evidence from a study that was performed actually fairly early on in the COVID pandemic, obviously an animal study, where they showed that the SARS-CoV-2 virus actually binds to a specific
2: receptor. Interestingly, the receptors that the virus binds to, at least in this animal study, was not the olfactory receptors themselves, but on supporting cells. Ones that actually allow the olfactory receptors to regenerate. And when they bind to these supporting cells, they release a chemical. And it's that chemical that interrupts the ability to smell. So it's a more indirect
3: way. It's not damaging the receptor themselves, at least in the studies that have been done
2: so far. Have you been hearing from a lot of people at Monell who are suffering from smell loss as a result of COVID? Yeah, we've put a lot of resources
3: on our website, and so we get a lot of inquiries about what is known, what can be done. Sometimes people just want to share, as you probably well know, how lonely it can feel when you have a, a sort of a disorder that seems so invisible. And that until now, many people pooh pooed it as being not that important. And yet you would be feeling so isolated and alone and and so disoriented in ways that having someone or an organization to share that information with, just that feeling that someone else understands what you're going through.
2: For me, living in a world without smell felt strange and stagnant. In those months of recovery after my accident, as my knee, head, and pelvis slowly healed, I felt as if I were watching myself in a movie there but not present. I didn't know how to describe it to my friends or family. How do you describe the scent of nothing? It was strong, it was blank. it was entirely overwhelming.
4: It felt quiet, I guess. like it felt things you know felt a little somehow quiet and it caused me to lose my appetite completely, like I just wasn't interested in eating anything at all.
2: That's Karen Dalzell. Karen and her husband were diagnosed with COVID just a few days before Thanksgiving. She lost her ability to smell within 24 hours of being diagnosed. And I
4: lost it completely. Like, completely.
2: For me, too, eating was hard. Food was... Well, food was different. Not different good. Definitely different bad. I could still taste... I had the ability to perceive the five taste sensations— sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami— through the taste buds in my mouth and on my tongue. But all the nuance, all the details, all the flavor of food— it turns out that's from smell. And I felt that loss acutely. I could taste the sweet of sugar in a popsicle, the salt on a potato chip, the acid sour of a squirt of lemon juice in a cup of water. But that was it. Ice cream was a thick, cold slush. Lattes, a hot, gelatinous liquid. I ate bread soaked in Tabasco sauce because I could feel the spiciness.
5: I remember I was cooking bacon, and I mean, bacon in the oven—like the whole bacon anywhere in your,
2: on your stove—the
5: whole house smells like it. And I remember opening the oven, and like that heat hit my face, and I could see the bacon, and it was sizzling. But there was nothing, and that—that's when, when I knew I was like, okay, I'm not smelling anything.
2: That's Camilla Chaparro. Smell is very important to her job.
5: I am a senior editor at America's Test Kitchen. I develop recipes for our cookbooks.
2: When she lost her sense of smell due to COVID last winter, she struggled with cooking, too.
5: You know, when you burn garlic and it gets, it just goes a little too far and you get that, I don't know if it's like acrid sort of, but it has a very distinct smell when you go too far with garlic. And by looking at it, I was thinking this doesn't, I think I went too far. It was too hot, but I couldn't smell it. And everybody said it tasted fine in the end, but, you know, it's one of those, (laughs) I I honestly wasn't sure. Um, But I do remember thinking, like, is this, should I dump this out? Is this terrible?
2: Food and cooking wasn't my only worry. I worried that if I were alone, I wouldn't be able to smell a gas leak or the smoke of a fire. That the food I was going to cook had gone bad, and I would end up dying of food poisoning, or at least eating food that any normal human would consider disgusting. How far my palate had fallen. I missed the scent of places. The comforting scent of my mother's house, of a new car, the ocean. I worried that I smelled. I worried that my clothing smelled. I worried that whenever I started dating again, I wouldn't be able to pick up on important pieces of information through smell. Like what kind of cologne did he wear? Did I find the scent of his post-gym sweat good or bad, or at least not offensive? Wasn't there science around how smell was an important evolutionary indicator of how to pick a good mate? I thought about the future. I didn't want kids in that moment, but I'd probably want them later. Would I be able to breathe in the scent of their tiny baby heads? Would I know when to change their diapers? The world felt suddenly very dark. Not only could I not fully experience my present, I was terrified that I wouldn't be able to perceive my future. I wasn't alone, not really. There were millions of others out there who, like me, couldn't smell.
1: Okay, so this goes back to 2005, when I was 22 years old.
2: That's Duncan Bullock. We have a lot in common. We lost our senses of smell at the same age, in the same year, through the same injury.
1: At the time, I was a musician, guitarist in a band. We had an album coming out later that year. I recently started a relationship with a girl who I was falling in love with, and life was incredible and exciting and um, going places and I went out for drinks this bar in Leeds in North England and the stairs in this bar are really really steep I w- went up them and I slipped and fell backwards qu- from quite close to the top next thing I know I'm waking up in hospital and my parents are sitting there and though I was yeah I'd I'd I suffered quite severe um injuries to the back of my head um and was in hospital for a week and came out of there considering myself firstly very lucky to be alive and sort of trying to work out if everything was okay and it was when I sat down to eat the first meal I'd had really since the accident that I was eating it and thinking this this doesn't this doesn't really taste of anything and it was then that I realized that I couldn't smell
2: But unlike me, Duncan says he didn't really think about his lost sense of smell for years after he lost it. Sure, food didn't taste like much, but he hadn't really paid attention to smell before he lost it, and he didn't pay much attention after either. But he did know that something was different.
1: My experience of life got a lot flatter, grayer, colder. I didn't experience the same sort of emotional peaks or troughs anymore. Things just sort of flatlined, and I didn't have the same sort of richness of relationships with partners that I'd had previously. And I spent many years thinking, you know, what what did I do to my brain when I hit my head when I had that accident that that made things feel so different?
2: And then something changed.
1: And then in 2011, a friend told me about an article in the paper, in the Guardian, I think it was, about this girl who'd lost a sense of smell and written a book about it. And I went out and bought the book and, yeah, fast forward. And and here I am for the first time meeting and talking to the author of that book. So,
2: (laughs) Spoiler alert, that's me. I wrote a book about the sense of smell. It came out in 2011. For Duncan, it was the first time he ever realized that he wasn't alone in his invisible injury. There were others, potentially many others, out there just like him just like us.
1: And it was just this huge, not even a light bulb moment, but imagine an aircraft hangar full of light bulbs and a great big sort of cartoon switch that you pull down and they're all bursting into illumination. That's the effect it had on me. And um, I remember reading it thinking, do you know what? This could change my life. And, um, And it has done. So thank you. Thank you for writing it.
2: Like me, Duncan needed a way to process what had happened to him and how his world had changed. He didn't write about it. He started a charity. The Fifth Sense is a nonprofit in the UK dedicated to supporting those who have disorders of taste and smell.
1: And, you know, the key goal in the beginning was I wanted to create the information and support resource that I wished had been there for me when I'd had the accident, yeah? So that others wouldn't have to go through the same experience of no information from the doctors, no recognition that it's even a problem.
2: The Fifth Sense has seen a large rise in people seeking help since COVID-19 started affecting the sense of smell of so many. Duncan and his team have collected information about smell loss in COVID, as well as smell training on their website. He says it's horrible to see so many people going through what he and I went through all those years ago. But there is some hope.
1: The COVID-19 pandemic has been a dreadful thing, but you know what? There are some positives coming out of this in terms of the, the smell and taste world. And I think in the longer term will lead to greater understanding and hopefully more options and possibilities for treating people.
2: Despite the hope for the future that the additional attention that COVID-related smell loss could bring to the research field, those with smell loss are still getting through their own experience. I recently spoke with Michael Flynn, not the general.
3: My name is Michael Flynn, and I am a uh, TV producer.
2: Michael lost his sense of smell when he and his whole family got COVID last November. It's still not back.
3: It almost feels like a luxury that you want but you can't have. You can survive without it, but it'd be really nice to have it here. Because there's so many things that there was like formula breath, like any any time like my baby would be on my shoulder and like kissing me and I could smell the formula breath. Like that's something I always liked and like that's something that if I'd still had kids that age, I would think like I really really wish that I could have that again. So it's just those little things like in the winter like we have a fireplace downstairs, like being able to just smell it. Like it'd be nice but I'm able to survive without it.
0: When we return, Molly's recovery makes a breakthrough. The family farmers at Pete and Jerry's Organics are passionate about raising happy, healthy hens that produce the best eggs. Here's Pete and Jerry's farmer, Judith Klein, of Rockingham County, Virginia.
3: We've got scores of hens just outside, just... Hacking at any little bugs that they can find. And and my son loves them. Like, he'll go out and walk up to me like, Mom, I want to hold one.
0: Your son's little hands are touching eggs that are going in the cartons, that are going across the country. There's got to be something that just feels so, so wonderful about it.
2: It is very
3: rewarding. Just overall, taking care of the earth and taking care of our animals. We've got these bright orange yolks, And that just is such a testimony to how much access they have to going outdoors.
0: Speaking of quality eggs, I know you have a family recipe for a blueberry cobbler that calls for using really good eggs.
3: So it's called Mama's Blueberry Cobbler. Think back to something that just brings back the best memories. And this is exactly the feeling I get when I take a bite of this cobbler. Just gives this little crisp bite to the top of it. It feels like love, honestly.
0: Find Judith's family recipe and more about her family farm at PeteandJerry's.com. That's Pete and G-E-R-R-Y-S dot S.com. At OXO, it's not just about creating everyday tools, it's about making them better, easier, and more enjoyable to use with better results. Take, for example, OXO's new sauce and gravy whisk. Senior product manager Benat Fache explains what makes it different and better. When you're usually making sauce, everyone assumes that it's in
5: some sort of roasting pan. But a lot of times people make a roux or a bechamel in a saucepan that has high walls. And with any other type of whisk, it's hard to get into the corners. So what we did was we developed a sauce whisk that has all of these wires together that you rub against the pan so with this rounded edge here you could get every single corner inside a high pan and not worry about
0: missing areas better sauces start with better tools shop all products at oxo.com that's o-x-o.com oxo better guaranteed and now back to molly
2: For me, the scentless days and then weeks and then months after the car accident went by. The rest of my body slowly healed. I lived with my mother as fall turned into winter and then to spring as I tried to figure out what to do next. Without smell, I couldn't cook. Not really. Not well, anyway. I started working for a temp agency doing data entry and secretary work. I did a lot of mediocre cooking. I liked the mindlessness of prep, of following recipes, even if the results without a sense of smell felt distressingly all over the place. I clearly remember my mom telling me that my cooking was erratic. Speaking of my mom, I talked to her the other night over Zoom to ask her about that time. I asked her if she remembered my cooking from the time after the accident.
4: Yes, oh, I definitely remember that. It was very good. No, you're supposed to say it was bad. You told me it was erratic. At the time. See how much a mother doesn't want to remember a painful time? Charlie might remember more. Do you want me to get Charlie? Yeah, get Charlie. Hey, Charlie, can you come down for a second? Molly has a question to you about her cooking.
2: Charlie is my mom's longtime partner. I asked Charlie if he remembered that my cooking was erratic.
6: I don't remember
1: ever thinking your cooking was erratic. But since my general level of cuisinology is like zero, it could
6: have been horribly erratic and I wouldn't have noticed.
4: Here's something I do remember, which is when you went to New York, you created that list of recipes, which we wanted you to do because we wanted all those recipes because we had really loved your cooking for us. And the food that you cooked.
2: That's interesting. I mean, maybe, maybe it was more about how I felt about it. Memory is fallible. Tastes are different. The important thing is that I felt erratic. But one night, as I was making dinner for my mom and Charlie, something changed. I planned to cook a leg of lamb with fresh rosemary. To prep, I laid a thick bundle of the fresh herb on a cutting board before me. I plucked the pointed leaves and then chopped them. I would use them to flavor the marinade for the meat. You know, for the people at the dinner table who could detect flavor. I moved along in my work mindlessly. Pluck, 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 chop, chop, chop. My knife rapid against urban wood. I let my mind wander. And then, suddenly, I stopped. I breathed in and out, slowly. There was something in the air, something different, something surprising and strange, something I couldn't quite process, like I had entered a waking dream. There was a smell. The scent was light but undeniable. It entered my nose with purpose on each breath. It was shocking, like a burst of neon light in a landscape of black and white, and I stood there silently, unsure of what to do. I inhaled. And exhaled. It smelled of the woods, of the ground, of the earth. It smelled dark, a dark forest green. I leaned over the rosemary and inhaled again deeply the scent of fresh rosemary. It was rich and warm. There it was. There was what? A thought? A memory? The aroma took me somewhere. Somewhere immediate, my childhood, to a family vacation in Colorado, when I rode a horse for the first time on a trail littered in rosemary bushes. But how? How did the scent of rosemary return? The olfactory neurons are wily little things. They are tiny and delicate in their thread-like path from the nose to the brain, easily severed and subject to chance. But they have pluck. The olfactory neurons are capable of tremendous growth. They can rise from the dead. And mine, it seemed, were on the move. In the accident, my olfactory neurons were most likely severed in the impact of the crash. Remember, they were clipped off like blades of grass by a lawnmower. When I lay on a cot in the hospital in those following days, going in and out of CT scans and talking gibberish to my mother— the remains of my truncated olfactory neurons receded, and then they died. For most of the neurons in the human body, that would be the end. But not in the nose. The olfactory stem cells replenish constantly, even in a healthy nose. They're some of the only neurons in the human body with the ability to regenerate from scratch. And they do so constantly. I talked to Pam Dalton at Monell about olfactory regeneration and how it's hopeful for those who have lost their sense of smell
3: the system has a robustness to it, that it, you know, it wants to recover, you know, it's a very adaptive system. Because the olfactory receptors themselves are exposed to the environment in a way that no other, you know, primary neuron is, everything else is protected, you know, in the brain. That's probably why they need to regenerate, because there
2: is damage to them over time. So my nose and my brain were recovering. And some people who lose their sense of smell do recover, particularly when the loss of smell is due to COVID. Camilla Chaparro, the recipe developer who we heard from earlier, recovered her sense of smell. Karen Dalzell, who lost her sense of smell right before Thanksgiving, also got her smell back. But recovery for those who lose their sense of smell isn't always a straight line. It definitely isn't always complete and there are lots of weird things that can happen along the way. When the olfactory system is damaged, many things can go wrong, and unfortunately, they often do. One dark winter afternoon, a couple months after the accident, I sat at my mother's kitchen table reading a book and sipping a scentless bitter cup of coffee. When the new scent arrived, it came slowly. I couldn't tell what it was. It hovered lightly around me, It wasn't the coffee steaming in my hand. It wasn't the book, or the table, or the lamp. I closed my eyes. The more I concentrated, the stronger it grew. It was a toothsome, earthy scent. It was a strange scent. Was it even real? When I left the kitchen, the scent followed me to the living room, and then to my bedroom. It followed me to the shower, and then to the car parked in the driveway, I smelled it under my covers as I fell asleep that night. I smelled it over the oven as I baked a loaf of flavorless lemon pound cake the following morning. I smelled it in the garden and on the front steps, in the basement and in the linen closet upstairs. It lasted for weeks. I could smell my brain. I was pretty positive. That was really the only explanation, I thought. It wasn't a bad scent, it smelled like the forest. Like the woods. It felt organic and real and fluctuated in strength throughout the day. This smell didn't come from anything around me. That much was obvious. Therefore, I thought it must come from within. It had to be my brain. Pam Dalton had a different answer, of course
3: we're seeing that there is a great deal of reported distortions during the recovery. People lose their sense of smell. They get it back to a certain degree, but now they have what's called parosmia, which is when things simply don't smell the way they used to prior to the virus insult. And that actually can be very disruptive as well because now things, instead of not smelling at all, they smell different and often unpleasant from what they previously smelled like.
2: I was lucky that my phantom smell was relatively pleasant. Karen Dalzell was not as lucky.
4: Oh, my God. (laughs) I forgot all all about that.
2: Her sense of smell returned in the weeks after she recovered from COVID.
4: My smell started coming back, and it all seemed fine, and everything seemed kind of normal. And then about four weeks after, like, I was starting to— I couldn't go to sleep without— pouring, like, scent on my pillows. Like, I was just smelling—everything smelled like it was on fire or cigarettes, constantly. And that went on for, like, eight weeks.
2: According to Pam, phantom smells are a sign that the olfactory system is attempting to heal itself.
3: We think it's a hopeful sign in the long run that they are regaining their ability to smell. But in the short term, it's certainly very distressing. I mean, I've heard from people that say they don't even want to hug their spouse anymore because the smell of them is just so
2: offensive. For me, the scent of my brain was hopeful. Something was happening in there.
0: Hi, Proof listeners, it's Bridget here. Now, did you ever find that ripe, juicy mango is slipping and sliding all over your cutting board when you're trying to cut into it? Or maybe the mango's just a little too firm. Well, today, my America's Test Kitchen colleague and friend, Elle Simone Scott, comes to the rescue, and she's going to share some amazing prepping tips with me. Hey there, Elle. Hey, Bridget. How you doing? I am doing great, but I'd be better if I didn't have to deal with slippery mangoes. I know. So first, you're going to cut a thin slice from the end of the mango so that it sits flat on the counter. That's a good safety tip anytime you're dealing with wobbly food, right? Absolutely. And just to be safe, we're going to hold down the mango firmly if it isn't as ripe. Got it. So next, you're going to rest the mango on the trimmed end and cut off the skin in thin strips from top to bottom. Then you're going to cut down along each side of the flat pit to remove the flesh. And then you can cut the flesh as you desire. All right. Well, easy does it. And thanks, Elle. Go to mango.org proof for more tantalizing mango recipes
2: and to learn more about mangoes. I moved to New York City from my mom's house in Boston about eight months after the accident. I moved as soon as I could walk again without pain. I felt trapped in my mother's house. I couldn't work in food, not without a sense of smell. So I moved to New York because it was far enough away and that's where you go when you wanna try and write. I liked writing, not as much as cooking, but I had a vague idea of getting a job in publishing. Again, sorry, mom and dad. I found a small room in an apartment in Brooklyn and spent my first month in the city wandering. I wore a bulky knee brace, my pelvis ached when it rained, and I couldn't smell. The city was a blank slate without the aroma of car exhaust, hot dogs, or coffee. Nothing was unbearable, and nothing was especially beguiling. But scents began to return, slowly, cautiously, one smell at a time. Suddenly, I could smell the chocolate from a pack of M&M's someone was eating on the subway, several seats away. I stared at them, goggle-eyed, for two stops straight. Chocolate. I had forgotten how much I love chocolate. One afternoon, a whiff of perfume on Madison Avenue stopped me in my tracks. Cilantro, the leafy green herb that I chopped to add to another salad, came on an evening in late June pungent and cool and begging for guacamole. The jasmine of my morning tea arrived on an exhale. Cantaloupe, summer-fresh sweet suddenly beckoned from five feet away. Slowly, painstakingly, almost secretively, individual smells had begun to return. Month by month, they arrived alone, just like the rosemary. They arrived one at a time, confusing me with a combination of familiar and strange— Not everything was returning, though. Like the sharp light of a street lamp on an otherwise deserted street at midnight, these smells arrived singularly, spread apart, and glowing like mad. I could go days without smelling a thing, and then pop! The scent of laundry or butter or soap would infiltrate my nose. Eventually, I found work as an editorial assistant at an art magazine in Midtown, One evening in November, more than a year after the accident, I walked out of the front door to my office building. It was going to be a late night at the magazine, and I needed coffee. I set off down the block toward my usual caffeine haunt. But then, suddenly, I stopped. There was a smell. But this one was different. Sticky, cold, almost crass. It reminded me of something vague but familiar, like the name of a friend I hadn't seen in years. I looked around, unsure. And then I saw it. Trash. Ripe containers full of trash. There was a pile of garbage bags busting at their seams lying on the sidewalk nearby. They smelled bad. I mean... Bad, like rotting fish, like stagnant water on a hot summer day, like the slimy mouthful of an old mushroom you forgot to check. This was the first bad smell I'd perceived in more than a year. It was glorious. Fast forward through time, the smells continued to return slowly and cautiously, but continuously. A few years into my New York City life, I went to grad school in journalism. Again, I'm really sorry, Mom and Dad. And it was then that I really started reporting on the sense of smell. How did it work? Why did it sometimes not? And as happy as I was to have so many scents return to my consciousness, I realized that I had trouble attaching words to smells. I had trouble recognizing familiar smells. It felt like my brain had broken a little. Occasionally, it was funny. My mom remembers one incident in particular.
4: When we went to Martha's Vineyard, and we were driving on a country road, and we had the windows open, and you smelled a smell, and I asked you what it was, (laughs) and you thought about it really, really, really hard, and you decided it was the smell of almond croissants, but in fact, it was the smell of skunk. (laughs) (laughs) I first learned
2: about training your nose when I interviewed Christophe Laudamiel, who is a perfumer. I met him when he gave a talk about the sense of smell in the West Village. Later, I emailed him and asked if I could talk to him more. He said yes.
6: So hi, I'm uh, Christophe Laudamiel. I'm a master perfumer.
2: When we met, he was a perfumer at International Flavors and Fragrances. Today, he designs scents for major hotels, retailers, and
6: museums. Ambient scents, he calls them. So I like to say that besides being a master perfumer, I'm also a scent engineer. Like, if you're a musician, you have the music composers writing the music, but you also have sound engineers. And we see how it's two very different professions. And in perfumery, we also have both.
2: In his office at International Flavors and Fragrances in Midtown Manhattan, one bright spring afternoon in 2008, I remember Christoph taking small strips of white paper and dipping them in bottle after bottle of raw perfume materials, which had strange foreign names. Ones like Hedione, ISO E-super, and Galaxalide. They were synthetic things, chemical things. Things that, Christophe explained, could be combined by the dozens, by the hundreds, to make a new fragrance. I remember Christoph handing the smelling strips to me one at a time and asking me to sniff. I remember smelling, vague, ephemeral odors, ones for which I had no words. Christoph guided me, saying, this one smelled like jasmine, this one like musk, this one like citrus, this one like birch. Perfumers, he told me then, as he told me again recently, they need to train their noses.
6: I would say, actually, we have to train more than musicians, There are many more notes in perfumery than you have notes in music. Uh, But part of the training is a bit similar, where if you don't know music so well, you listen and then you don't even pay attention to the different instruments. You don't see what's okay, what needs to be changed. And it's the same in perfumery, except the system is much more complex. I remember going through 20 samples before the end of the afternoon. And
2: when I stopped sniffing, I felt deflated, like I had failed. Christoph didn't seem phased.
6: Well, yeah, you have to smell a lot. You have to learn the ingredients because this is like your, the keys on the piano, or eh? your building blocks, I mean, it's your bricks, if you wish. And then you have to learn them for what they are, from their name, and you have to learn them for what they smell like.
2: When I left, Christoph handed me a collection of small bottles of raw materials, instructing me to smell them each day. Practice, he said, would strengthen my nose. As it turns out, he was right. Training could help. Training would help. Training your nose, Pam Dalton recently told me, is as simple as smelling a handful of spices every day. It might be five minutes in the morning and five minutes later in the day.
3: But the idea is you're specifically trying to relate what the molecules you're breathing in are to the brain representation that you had before you lost your sense of smell or before it became distorted. And so it's a very mindful way of trying to uh, connect the nose to the brain again.
2: How does it work? They don't totally know. But studies have shown that structured, short-term exposure to scents increase the olfactory sensitivity of those with smell loss. It can work for those who lose their sense of smell in any way. Head trauma like me, a common cold, or COVID.
3: It does work for quite a few people. So, you know, it, the timing, some evidence is that the sooner you start, the better the outcome. But there's no point at which you shouldn't try it. So... I decided to try it,
2: like really try it. I would like to say, just for the record, that what I did next is 1000% not necessary for training your nose if you are in need of training your nose. But at this point, it was almost five years after the accident and I had sold a book proposal to write about my sense of smell. And I was feeling over the top. So I went to perfume school in France, just for a few weeks. I know. I know. In Grasse, France, at the Grasse Institute of Perfumery, a small group of perfume enthusiasts, and me, sat at a table smelling chemicals and putting words to those scents every day, all day. I could smell almost everything, but recognition remained elusive. My ability to identify a smell without knowing its source was gone. But, as the teacher reminded me, smells do not inherently come with words. The parts of the brain that recognize scent are more closely tied to memory and emotion than to language. I needed to figure out another way to recognize scent. With each new smell, I began to consciously assign associations. I used colors and sounds. Memories, too. I assigned them to the smells that conjured them, bringing them back again and again, hoping to glue them together as the odor molecules sent their signals to my brain. It didn't always work. But sometimes it did. Geranium smells floral and sour, minty and fresh. To me, it became the image of a shimmering, green-blue swimming pool. Neroli was a long gray line hovering behind my eyelids, a few golden pinpricks of light above. Cedarwood became the closet in the basement of my childhood home. One day, I found this small note of cucumber and the raw material violet. I got the mushroom to myrrh oil. Smell had never been so alive as it was around that table that final week. It changed and grew every day, with every scent, inviting colors and sounds and emotion with each breath. By the final day, when I detected the bitter orange peel of neroli with the long gray line, the sun-speckled dots above, I felt the underpinnings of something that had long been foreign. Confidence. Confidence in my nose and in my brain. Today, 16 years after I lost and then regained my sense of smell, I work as editor-in-chief of America's Kitchen Kids. I don't cook for a living, but I think about food and cooking, and how to teach kids about them both, every day. I can smell just about everything again. I don't think I could pick out the bitter orange to neroli, I'm not even sure I could recognize the scent of neroli at this point. It's been a while. But it doesn't matter. That's for sure. Because smell is so important to so many parts of life, but particularly for flavor in cooking, as part of my job now, we like to teach kids about the power of scent. One of my favorite ways to do this is with jelly beans. Jelly beans, especially jelly bellies, have very strong and very specific flavors which you can only perceive through smell. All right, Olive, are you holding your nose? Can you say something? What does it sound like? No. (laughs) That's my daughter, Olive. She's four years old. I asked her to hold her nose so she wouldn't be able to smell while she chewed a jelly bean. So hold your nose tight, stick the jelly bean in your mouth, and chew on it. Keep your nose whole. Can you tell what flavor it is? No. I asked her to remove her hand and breathe in deeply as she continued to chew, allowing herself to suddenly once again smell as she ate. Can you tell what the flavor is now? What is it? Chocolate. You're right. I've been cooking with olives since she was able to stand at the counter. I've tried to teach her to pay attention to her nose.
4: Smell is very important.
2: Though she does have a bit of a one-track mind. What's your favorite smell? Chocolate. Me too. And I'll admit, her diapers smelled a little bit like almond croissants.
0: Thanks to Molly Birnbaum for bringing us this story. Molly's book about the sense of smell and her experience is called Season to Taste, How I Lost My Sense of Smell and Found My Way. And be sure to check out Molly's fun podcast from America's Test Kitchen Kids called Mystery Recipe. If you like proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Yumi Araki is our senior producer. Caroline Rickert is our producer. Terrence Johnson is our associate producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton and Anya Zhechik of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production supervisor is Hen Margolis. Our line producer is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Pete and Jerry's, Acorn TV, OXO, The Mango Board, Edible, and Sika Salmon Shares. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.